the 25th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. My co-host Vicky is not able to join us today, but I'm happy to be talking story with my friend, Hawaii-based author and activist Stuart Coleman. So let's see, it's been almost 30 years since you arrived in the island, Stuart, and we'll talk about your books and books and drinks, of course, your longtime efforts as a Hawaii director of the Surfrider Foundation, and your more recent business enterprise to get the crap out of Hawaii's waters. But uh, let's start on another warm and beautiful coastline. You were uh, raised and first exposed to the water in South Carolina, right? Yeah, born and raised in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, or South Kakalaki, as we used to refer to it. Um, and uh, yeah, some of my first memories of are being plopped by the ocean by my parents and eating periwinkles by the shore. What are periwinkles? Periwinkles are those colorful little shells you see all along the beach on the East Coast. And they're like little clams. And so my mom didn't realize I sat there and ate them. And then when she went to change my diaper later on, she was like, this jewel thing had come out, <laughs> which she thought I was the golden goose, you know, that uh, laid the jeweled eggs, um, which might explain some of my stomach problems later in life. But yeah. So you grew up beautiful coastline. It was only two years ago I finally got to South Carolina. Incredible dog legs of natural salt marsh and oyster reefs, wild oyster reefs, and dolphins swimming around in your muddy waters. So why'd you ever leave? Yeah, you know it was uh, a, a miraculous place to grow up. I mean, we were going out to some islands where there were still wild horses on these outer islands when I was a little kid, and now my sister was just telling me some of these plots sell for the land itself, small plots, $10 million, because Charleston has been voted, you know, the most popular destination in the country for like seven years in a row from uh, Travel and Leisure magazine. So it was an amazing place to grow up. You know, not the most progressive politics. My dad was a, mm. a minister and a civil rights advocate and, uh, and, there were a lot of people that didn't quite get that and still don't. And so I started, I took a course in high school, a mandatory course called Cultures of the Pacific in the seventh grade. And it was all about Hawaii and Polynesian culture. And we were like, we called it Coconut Civ. And we're like, why the hell are we learning about this? We're in Charleston, South Carolina on the other side of the world. But our principal had been um, a Marine in the Pacific theater during World War II and it almost died over there. And he was recuperating and, and spent time in Hawaii and Australia and Japan, you know, later on um, in Japan um, and just fell in love with the different cultures and thought these, you know, Southern SOBs need to learn more about the world. And so I started surfing about the same time and those two things just came together. You know, my love of this diverse culture, this place Hawaii is the most, where East meets West, one of the most diverse states in the country, and then just the mecca of surfing. So since I was a kid, I always wanted to live here. I did. I got a job teaching at a place called Punahou, where um, one Barack Obama uh, went to school. And um, I was stunned to learn that this school that I'd never heard of before is the largest private school west of the Mississippi, excuse me, the largest private school in the country and the oldest west, west of the Mississippi. And so, you know, it was also kind of the surf school where 
people like Jeff Hackman and Jerry Lopez had gone to school and some of the best big wave riders in the world, uh, these pioneers of the North Shore. So I immediately felt like, okay, I've landed in the right place. Um, this is the ultimate fast times at, you know, Hawaii high and uh, I was home. <laughs> So you were teaching and you were surfing and like Barack, you were having box lunch at the rainbow drive-in, whatever it was. Exactly. And, and, and love and life. I mean, as soon as I got here, I just thought, okay, this is, this is, you know, I went from a place where there really was a division of black and white and it was very clear. And there were lines and, and, you know, across town in Charleston and, um, and, you know, moving out to Hawaii, it was just, you know, everybody's a minority, there's no one majority. And so that was just a wonderful kind of change, the diversity, and then just the natural beauty, as you know, because you've come out and visited a number of times was just spectacular and the waves were amazing. And so that's when I decided, you know, I wanna, I never kind of fused my two passions of writing and surfing and then I was like, huh, why don't I write about surfing the thing I love doing the most? And I started writing about. Um, and, and this was your move was in your late 20s. Yeah, exactly. And so then you wrote, I'm not sure when, but you wrote your first book. Um, yes. Eddie Would Go, which is about uh, Eddie Aikau, famous big wave surfer. You then wrote a, a, another well-known book, uh, Fierce Hearts, the story of Makaha, which is a part of Oahu Island, the main island that's that's you call a soul of Hawaiian surfing. So yeah. tell us about Eddie and tell us about uh, Makaha. Yeah. So again, you know, part of the school's history at Punahou was so interesting because Fred Van Dyke and Peter Cole, to the original pioneering big wave surfers on the North Shore, were both teachers there. And so people introduced me to these legends and I was just kind of in awe and they were great guys and they would tease each other all the time. And, you know, they joked about when the swell was really big on the North shore, they were the ones getting caught skipping school, not their students, you know, <laughs> like, um, and uh, they introduced me to the ICAL family and so I met uh, Eddie's three surviving siblings, uh, Auntie Myra and Uncle Saul and Uncle Clyde, and told them what I was working on and knew these people that had been on the Hokulea with him, some of the last people to see him alive. And they just kind of opened up and started telling me these amazing stories. So just, just very briefly, tell us a little about the Hokulea and, and Eddie's role in trying to save it. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Hokulea is kind of the symbol of Hawaiian culture um, and the Hawaiian Renaissance that happened in the, in the 70s. And it's a double-hulled voyaging canoe, and it was modeled after the first vessels that brought the early settlers to Hawaii from, from across Polynesia, most likely Tahiti and the Marquesas. And they created this replica based on an original one um, that they had found, you know, like the remains of, and they right. wanted to recreate these voyages just using celestial navigation. So in 1976, they had their maiden voyage and National Geographic covered. It was a huge international event, the first long, you know, voyage that had been done just using the stars as guides and, and swells and animal life um, in the ocean. And then two years later, 1978, they wanted to do 
a voyage again. And Eddie was like one of the first that said, I want to be on that voyage. I want to be part of something that's so historic. Um, and no, he was by then already a, a legendary big wave Hawaiian surfer. Exactly. So he had kind of conquered the biggest waves at Waimea Bay, was won the Duke contest, one of the world's most prestigious contests at the time, a few months before. And this was something for him that was just would be the pinnacle of his life to sail on this voyage. And so the only problem was, you know, Hawaiians have it's said that they have this intuitive sense of Israel Ole, brother is, you know, who one of the great singers in, in Hawaiian history, um, modern Hawaiian culture said, you know, we Hawaiians, we see things on both sides. And so before the voyage left, Eddie had a sense that it wasn't going to make it, that something or he wasn't going to make it, some premonition. And he only told a few people, but he took care of all of his affairs. He Literally every financial matter, he finalized a divorce with his wife, but told his family, if anything happens to me, she is still my wife. She's the love of my life. And I want you to treat her as, as family. And he just did all of these things. And in retrospect, people were like, God, it was just amazing. Like he had some sense that something was going on. And so we set sail, young Nainoa Thompson was the navigator and one was going to be the first Hawaiian navigator to do this voyage there and back just using the stars because they had used someone, a couple of other people on the, on the previous voyage. And they weren't going to take an escort boat um, because there were some people that said, oh, that, you know, maybe they're relying on the escort boat way behind them. And so they were just like, we're just going to do the Hokulea. It's a long involved story. And it was one of the most amazing stories I ever heard in my life. But Suffice to say, we, to make a long story longer, the canoe capsized, took in water, and they were like 10 to 15 miles from the nearest island. And Eddie, being this famous surfer and lifeguard, just instinctually had the selflessness to say, let, let me go for help. And the captain said, no, it's too dangerous. And then, you know, they're upside down, clinging onto hulls, the hulls of the Hokulea all night. And, you know, people are starting to get really sick hypothermia and you know they'd been out there all nights violently seasick and eddie asked again and the captain refused and then finally came morning they realized that this was life and death for some of the crew members and so eddie asked again he said okay you can go and as he's paddling off they had brought a surfboard as a kind of safety vessel but also eddie wanted to surf the waves in tahiti when they got there he paddles off and Nainoa swims out and says you don't have to do this you know this is dangerous he knew how risky it was and Eddie said, no, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And that changed Nainoa's life forever because when he paddled off, they, he was never seen again. And miraculously, and that's another story in itself, the rest of the crew was rescued. And so- They were um, seen by helicopter, by- there, there was a last flight out of, uh, out of Hilo um, from the big island that was late and it kind of went off course. And the, the crew members huddled at night on the Hokulea, shot one of their very last flares. And the pilot said later, I just saw the spark out of the corner of my eye and I didn't know what it was, but I thought that's worth checking out. And he circled around and they fired like their last flare. So he knew it was an emergency and he called the Coast Guard and was able to get them there. 
And afterwards, they talked about the chances of that happening, of just the time the flight left, going slightly off course, seeing the flare was just like a million and one. It was a miracle that they were found. So for more, read Eddie Would Go. Yes. Great book. I've read it. Um, you did another on a, a culture of Hawaiian surfing that's that's genuinely, you know, family-based and traditional. People forget that surfing was really invented, wave sliding invented on uh, the islands of Hawaii. I even say the first toe-in surfing occurred centuries and centuries ago in Hawaii because they used to take the, you know, the ali'i, the royalty, and even the king and queen, and they would take them way out into the waves in the canoes, and then they would kind of tow them into the waves, and they would just jump off there on their long wooden boards and jump right into the waves. So I was like, that's really the first toe-in surfing that yeah, uh, way before they invented the jet ski. Exactly, exactly. You went on to uh, become an activist with Surfrider, which is sort of the eco surfers of the world. And, and yeah. uh, you became Hawaiian director. And why was that? And what'd you do? Yeah, I um, had volunteered with the Surfrider Foundation. I loved, you know, what they did. And they had chapters all around the country. And so I'd been volunteering for a while and realized we didn't have any staff in Hawaii. And like, this is the birthplace of surfing and we have all these issues. So uh, I helped raise money and we, we uh, worked with the local chapters here and we created the Hawaii manager position. So I served in that role for 10 years and worked with, uh, you know, seaweed rebels like yourself to pass some, you know, landmark legislation, which was fun. We were the first and only state uh, to ban smoking on beaches because cigarette butts are the number one most littered item on beaches and very toxic. First and only state to pass a ban on oxybenzone and other toxic ingredients and sunscreen, which really hurts the reefs and um, is bad for water quality. And uh, reef friendly sunscreen. Yeah. Oh. So we, yeah, we're only doing reef friendly sunscreens. And so it was great because I got to work with these amazing activists. We had three marriages come out of it, you know, activists meeting in these meetings and going, hey, you like the same things I do. And, uh, so that was fun and um, including my own wife. So that was, that was good. We thought, well, if we, if it doesn't work with environmentalism, we'll, we can go into a dating service and, and do that. Um, but yeah, it was really um, a blast, but I kind of wanted to go out on my own. And so in my last- You were many years with Surfrider. I was there 10. And in my last year, we helped pass Bill 40, one of the most comprehensive plastic bands in the country. Um, and so at that point I was like, okay, I don't think we're going to get better than that. I've been working on this for 10 years to pass, you know, pass plastic pollution bans. That's it's amazing. You've gone from the early days of surf rider was anti-oil spills, you know, no way, dude, we don't want your crude when it came up on Huntington beach, California. Yeah. And de literally decades later, it's, solidified oil spill in, in the form of plastic and you got a lot done as a lot still being done in Hawaii. Yeah, thank you. We, we referred to it as a tale of two spills, you know, after the, the big spill in the Gulf and the BP oil disaster is that plastics are just another form of oil and, and these products and fossil fuels. 
And now that the oil companies are struggling so much, and you know, as people are realizing green energy is the future and renewable energy, they're really doubling down on plastics. So it's a fight that needs to continue. And it's not just petrochemical runoff from synthetic fertilizers and all. It's also things as common as poop, which is my segue for you into your new works. As I was working at Surfrider, one issue in Hawaii that became really, um, we helped pass a law to ban cesspools. We were the last state in the country to ban cesspools. And we have the most per capita in, in the country. And for those who don't know, you know, refresh your course, a, a cesspool is just a hole in the ground where you put all of the wastes from a house, black water and gray water from all your sinks and everything. And uh, there's no kind of treatment or anything. And it just leaches into the soil and goes into the groundwater and can affect drinking water, surface waters, and then puts a lot of nutrients and nitrogen into the near coastal waters or rivers you know, or lakes and can cause huge algal blooms, fish die-offs, and it's just really bad for the environment. Mother reefs, mother coral. Exactly, not good for the coral reefs. And so we, I kind of realized like, oh wow, there's not an, uh, a nonprofit that's really focused on this issue so we started uh, my new nonprofit called VI, which is W-A-I, which stands for Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations. And VI is also the name for water in Hawaiian. Um, and so we, our mission is to kind of reduce sewage pollution, but also introduce real innovative new technology from around the world that you know, is much cleaner, much more efficient, and eventually is gonna be much more affordable than the way we're doing it. I think we're going to look back on this, you know, time in our history where we, you know, we look back and we think we used clean drinking water to flush toilets. Like how ridiculous is that? You know, people die from lack of clean drinking water around the world every day and sources of clean drinking water are becoming more and more scarce. So, you know, we're trying to, we're working with the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates, had us come and speak at their reinvented toilet expo in Beijing. And he made this great analogy. And he said, you know, when I started in the computer business, they were the size of a room, these supercomputers, you know, and we had a vision of like personal computers that each person could have, you know, that eventually would fit in the palm of your hand. And he's like, what's the latest invention in toilet, you know, in sanitation, double ply toilet paper? Like in a couple hundred years, we haven't come that far and so we're looking at really cool, exciting things. We've partnered like, with- Like dry composting toilets, uh, things kind of getting off the grid, off the plumbing system, and, and yet not using holes in the ground. What, yep. what are some examples? So we're working with a great company that we met in Beijing called Cinderella Eco Group, and they have an incineration toilet. And uh, I have to say it, these things are hot shit right now, Dave. They're very popular. They're waterless. And- you can put them anywhere off the grid or in your house and you don't have to have all the plumbing connections. You don't have to build a septic tank and leach field, which can cost $30,000. And it just incinerates all the waste right there. And then all you have is this 100% pathogen-free ash that maybe once a week you dump into a trash can or put into your garden. Because um, at that point, it's, o- it's only kind of nutrients that remain. So at that individual level, we have Cinderella toilets up to we're partnering with this great company called Cambrian Innovation, which does decentralized package plants. And so they, you know, it can be as small as a 20 foot container 
and they can treat the waste of an entire community and produce clean water for irrigation, for all kinds of things. You know, for industry, they can reuse the water for cooling tanks and such. And so most of these things, the technology is moving towards reuse. Um, and that's, that's the most important thing to, because you have two important things that come out of this, you know, you have liquids and solids, the, the solids have a lot of nutrients and throughout history, all throughout history, they were always used in agriculture because they're a great source of nitrogen and phosphorus that you need. And so instead of all these artificial, you know, toxic chemicals, you can use these things and they're hundred percent pathogen free if you use biochar, which, you know, cooks out all the pathogens and just leaves the nutrients. And then you have the liquids that can be used for, you know, irrigation and always were, it was literally only in the last 300 years that we moved towards the kind of modern sanitation system where we don't reuse them. And we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on these plants just to pump this wastewater out into a river or out to sea. So we're saying if this isn't just something that we ought to do because it's right and environmentalist preaching, you need to do this. It's fun. You know, when you start to really think about ways that you can protect the planet. We have a saying at Surfrider, protect what you love. You know, it really is, it, it brings a joy to your life and a sense of purpose and meaning um, that I'll always be grateful for that I got into this realm and, and, uh, and you helped with that effort. So I appreciate that. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.